Well, in the in the last talk, I introduced the novel idea that we can look at Moses as a social architect, and uh, in that in that talk, I really unpacked in in some ways the soul and the mind of of a designer and applied that to Moses and asked what we could learn. In this talk, I actually go into the blueprint of his uh, nation-state that he was designing, and I examine um, the the actual design, the actual design of the state of Israel. Now, it's an, it's a, it's a, I'm not doing this through the window of you know traditional um, religious. Um, or theological approaches. I'm, I'm looking at it as a public document, a public document which is really unique, um, unique in the ancient world, and is probably the first quote-unquote constitution we have of a, of a major nation. Now, not, and it wasn't just any old kind of constitution because Moses was, by all accounts, doing something from a clean sheet of paper. So if we wanted to find even a rough equivalent to the book of Deuteronomy, we'd have to look at something like uh, the American Declaration of Independence when you know, the 13 states got together and crafted a breakaway uh, nation and, and wrote down the, the skeleton of a raison d'etre of that nation. That, that's what we're looking at here in Deuteronomy. In this particular talk, I go to the single most unique feature of that design, which is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, by all accounts, uh, totally unique in the ancient Near Eastern world. We, 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 we can't find analogies for it. The rest of Deuteronomy there's, uh, has strong connections to the ancient world. Now, in almost every case, Moses innovated based upon those connections. Um, so debt release is a really good example. There were debt release systems in the ancient world, but Moses stretched them. But the Sabbath, the Sabbath was unique. And it wasn't just unique, it appeared to be pervasive in the Jewish mind. So I examine what on earth the Sabbath means, and, and I, I actually do it via a question. And the question's a modern question. And the question is, essentially, um, what can we, we, in the 21st century, learn from Moses' design of the nation-state of Israel, and in particular the Sabbath feature of it, about our action today in the public space? That's the question. It's a very modern question. concerns a lot of, a lot of Christians. The answer, I'm going to say, the, the most fundamental answer will lie in the Sabbath, which is a really ironic because the Sabbath, at face value, appears to be an idiosyncratic, cultic, religious practice. It's actually, compared to the rest of Deuteronomy, or lots of it, it's not a social system, an economic system, it's not a judicial system. It seems very, very like a religious ceremony. And yet, somehow or other, um, rather... It's stuck as one of the Ten Commandments. By the way, I'm going to make the point we shouldn't call them commandments, but words. It's stuck in there. Um, it seems out of place. So this talk is an investigation into what does the Sabbath really mean. And um, I'm deliberately trying to take a argument from first principles. I'm trying to look at it not through a religious lens, but the lens of a worldview, of a mindset, and the, then the implications and the flow-on from this, what I think is a magnificent um, symbol around which the nation of Israel was built. And the governing idea, which is, which is so relevant for our times, is that this Sabbath was in fact a symbol, an echo of the creation narrative. And in essence, in essence, the creation narrative must be the source code of all of our thinking 
if we are to act in the public public space. And 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 the more we are to act in the public space, the more we need to go back into the resources of the creation narrative, the creation fundamentals to find wisdom as to how we might act. I trust you uh, enjoy it. It proved very popular amongst those who listened and I think we all were blessed, in, in, uh, not least of all me. So best wishes with it. Well, tonight we're continuing on the topic of Moses as the social engineer. Uh, it's it's a uh, let me just get this going here. Slideshow. We will we'll, we will dive into the uh, into the book. Oops, sorry, I'm just getting. We'll dive, in, dive into Deuteronomy um, in some detail tonight. Um, and we're particularly going to look at what I um, privately always thought was a idiosyncratic part of Jewish law, which is the Sabbath. When I say idiosyncratic, what I mean is I could see its importance in the Old Testament, but I couldn't see it as a universal principle. Um, However, um, the reason I've, I've chosen this icon here is it, it is, uh, once we get to understand it, it's like that drop of water that sets ripples off. It's actually like a core that sets off ripples of an entire alternative world view. The um, last time I talked about, I suppose, what we could learn from Moses about action in the world, yeah, we, we obviously in gospel conversations we're really proposing a vision for human beings as agents of change and reformation. Importantly, we're not claiming exclusivity to that role to Christians. That's a really important point. Uh, that certainly when I was you know a more fundamental Christian, I couldn't get my head around, but um, I can now. And that that fact that we're not claiming exclusivity is, I think. Fabulous. Far from being a surrender, it means that we can declare hope to everybody in the world and we can declare um, you know, a positive interpretation of life, uh, certainly as a prelude to getting to know the author of life. Um, God is the author of life. So uh, the, the point I, I made in that last talk and I've made before is that by my estimation, Moses would have to be the most innovative social engineer in human history. Uh, it's a bold claim, but it's not an exaggerated claim. If he's not the most, then he's, there's only three or four people in his category. And uh, I guess as Christians we're blinded to that because we tend to read the book through a religious lens. We actually you know, don't step, step back and say, well, hang on, what was going on here? This was the creation from nothing of a nation-state in one generation. It wasn't like it evolved. This was a blank sheet of paper, creation of a nation state, done by text. And we have the text. Uh, this is never, I mean, nowhere in the ancient world is there anything like this. Um, as we'll see tonight, rather importantly, he came out of Egypt. Now, uh, Rick Watts will be talking for, uh, later in the year. Rick's in Korea talking, in, inspiring some people in Korea. You know what Rick's, for those of you who know Rick, Rick's like a, a dose of adrenaline. So he's giving some gospel adrenaline in Korea. But Rick is really interested in Egypt. Um, so he's recommended this book to me. If any of you want to like ancient history, it's, it's The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson. And... Um, who's you know, one of the world experts on Egypt. It's just the story of Egypt. But he makes the point really clearly that Egypt was the first nation state in the world. Nothing before. And it was by far the longest kingdom we've known yet in the world, longer than the Roman Empire. So the fact that Moses came out of that world is to me also very, very interesting. You know, that he 
like I, I've seen the gospel at work, he wasn't working off a blank sheet of paper in some ways. He was clearly highly educated in the Egyptian nation-state system. But he proposed the most radical alternative to it. And as I say, he did it in one generation. So really you've got to put him alongside the founding fathers of the US, you know, who deliberately wrote their own declaration of independence. They deliberately tried to design a country. So we talked about that last time and uh, talked about the, the fact that uh, this enterprise of refurbishing the earth, populating the earth, as John Walton says, turning the house into a home is the agenda that God um, has given humanity. And um, we Christians... Uh, have tended to narrow our sense of what we're doing in the world to a redemption call, like be saved from your sins. That's true, but I think we have this broader declaration call. It's a word I want to give you tonight because there's a, there, there, are a lot, there are several subtextual themes of what I'm going to say tonight, one of which is what is the new evangelism? You know, what can I declare? Because so many Christians have this albatross around their neck that I've got, the first thing I've got to tell you is you're a sinner and Christ died for your sins and if you don't believe me, you're going to hell. This is a great conversation opener um, and we wonder why we're not that successful. Now, but if you back off that and say, well, I might get to that, I might get to that down the track if, I, if we know each other better and you're more interested, but what could I say almost to anyone? And I think there's a lot in... in um, this idea of declaration, we can declare the space we're in. I'm prepared to do it anywhere. You know, I have a strong belief, strong epistemology that we're in sacred space. I'm willing to tell that to anyone. And I do regularly in workshops. You know, and, and nobody finds it awkward. You just got to be clever. But nobody finds it awkward. People are interested. I just say, this is my worldview. I'll say, it's where I'm coming from. Everyone's coming from. This is my worldview. And, and people are, are interested in that. So all we're doing is we're kind of declaring a blessing on humanity and the enterprise upon the earth. That's, that's uh, uh, I think, quite an appropriate thing to do. Uh, and uh, by the way, I've got to say this. My experience has been, in terms of a hit rate, for people who are, and I work a lot with, you know, sceptics, agnostics, atheists, um, that, that it's almost 100% the hit rate of interest Wow, that's interesting. You know, and I'll often say to people, well, look, it's not really a religion. I prefer the word philosophy. It's a philosophy I've got. And so people, wow, let's talk more about that. So we're coming at Moses and this design as from that broader angle of what's God doing on the planet. And this is our biggest example of uh, you know, the attempt to create a social and an economic system out of this belief. Uh, I think there's, me there's many angles of learning we can get from what I'm, what I'm about to say, but um, um, I'll, I'll leave those in some ways. I'm, I'm more going to just tell the story of what Moses did, and I, I think there's different analogies and lessons we all could draw from it. So the question for which so we're going to go into the Sabbath. So I'm just diving straight into that part of the Deuteronomic law for the moment. And um, I think my proposal will be that the question for which the Sabbath is the answer is this one. What can we learn from Moses' design of the nation-state of Israel about our action and how we might act in the public sphere? So we're acting in public spheres, you know, places of employment, in family situations, we're acting in clubs, we're acting in the public sphere. Um, so how do we act wisely? And, and I think my answer to this is that um, the Sabbath is a real light to shine onto that. I don't really want to get a Christian answer out of that, which is, you know, what, what, what does it teach us Christians? Um, where we would have, oh, this, this applies to you if you're a Christian. Um, I'm really interested in a, it's a human question with, a, with an answer for all human beings. Um, and because we're, all we human beings are stumbling towards grace 
you know, life's complicated and messy and, you know, we, 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 need, we, we need hope. And so the, the tone of approach um, that I, of declaration is that this, this, is, this is on behalf of us all, all human beings. Uh, I think that this, uh, down the bottom, it's a bit low there on the screen, but this question of, um, in, in the Christian context, this uh, division between a Christian question and a public question is uh, I typify it as the monk versus the merchant. You know, it's kind of, if I love God, that's my choice at the extreme end. I can be a monk. And that's been, since the 3rd and 4th century, an incredibly attractive option for really serious Christians. Withdrawal from all activity. Um, the fact that the world is, you know, dirty and and uh, evil and to be destroyed and versus uh, be a merchant and engage, which seems to be some kind of sellout. We talk about that a lot. That I actually think a broader way of positioning almost, this is a human thing, that it's almost the, exactly the same question as the active life versus the reflective life. I mean, everybody worries about that. You know, if I'm working 16 hours a day and my mind is full of stuff, where do I, where do I find myself? It's just what I was saying about Accenture wanting to create a human flourishing organisation. Like, where do I get the work-life balance, quote-unquote? Where do I nourish my soul? The balance between action and reflection is one of the deepest points of wisdom to get in the human life. And Cicero is one of my heroes because it's often said at Cicero that he exemplifies how you could have the active life and the philosophical life bound up in one. So... Um, in a way, I think uh, what, we, what we're going to talk about uh, tonight in the Sabbath uh, bears on that as well. How to actually have a life that is very active, but at the same time reflective. So, um, Sabbath, let's get into it. Um, I just want to give a literary approach. This is how I read the Bible. I mean, the two lenses which, through which I read the Bible and through which I think people today are seeing um, all the fresh ideas. They're coming from two areas. One is history, that's Tom Wright. Uh, the other is literature. That would be Richard Hayes and people like that. So I'm more naturally literature than history. Uh, literature's my home territory. History uh, is more learned. So I'm giving a little bit, how do I read any text? Most people read a text at a flat line, you know what I mean? Just very face value. And at face value, you could, for instance, read uh, Deuteronomy 5 is where the Ten Commandments come in, right here, that's where, and the fourth is the, is the Sabbath. Uh, now, people will read that at face value and then straight line application into, uh, okay, next we go into the laws and how it applies. And, and so then people get caught up with, what do I do with the laws of Deuteronomy? Do they apply to us or do they not apply to us? And this fruitless type of um, discussion goes on. The only thing that frees most Christians from it is that they never read Deuteronomy. Um, and um, so this doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, the broader, if, if we say we're seeing, we're reading a, the more profound a text becomes, the more multiple levels it works on, you have to go further. And this is what you do. Um, Deuteronomy 5 is full of echoes. And echo is an important word. When a writer, and in this case it's Moses, but in the scripture, it happens throughout the scripture, you get reverberations from a past event into a forward event. And they might be unconnected by the narrative, but they seem to like a motif reverberates through each other and I say, well, something big is going on here. Um, the Sabbath will take us straight back to Genesis chapter 1. The origins of the world. That's why it's there. So we go back to deep first principles. We're now back in the biggest cosmological questions we can ask. What is the origin of life? You know, What's special about human beings? By the way, I've mentioned it before, but if you haven't and you would like to, it's really well worthwhile looking at the one hour 
discussion, mediated discussion between Rowan uh, Williams and Richard Dawkins at the Oxford Club. Has anyone seen that? It's really well worth it. Um, mediated by the agnostic professor of philosophy at Oxford University. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, in my view, Dawkins, he just revealed as to totally out of his depth in, in the presence of Williams, who's very... Quite interestingly, Dawkins is very admiring of Williams. You can feel when they introduce each other, he's slightly overawed. Williams, uh, Rowan Williams is a very gentle man, brilliant intellect now, literary critics of the Times, literary supplements, but it's so gentle, but you just know there's this... Reminds you what they said about Abraham Lincoln as a lawyer. His opponent said he'd send you to sleep when you were... You'd make a point, you think, is he going to interject? No, so you keep going. Uh, no, he's not interjecting and your confidence grows and grows as your argument's developing. And then suddenly you find yourself flat on the back, on your back in the ditch. And Williams is like that. You never trust a quiet, gentle debater. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, I think he gets, Dawkins gets palpably out of his depth in philosophy and, and the agnostic professor has to point it out to him. Um, and Williams is, uh, Ron Williams is so gentle, he doesn't push his winning points at all. But the reason he's out of his depth is they're not discussing biological level. The four, what the, they had four questions, one of which is, what's the origin of life? Are human beings special? You know, that's what they had to debate. It wasn't mechanics of evolution. So he's right back in this cloudy bubble. Now, once you get in the cloudy bubble, then your mind starts to get, you know, deepened by that cloudy bubble of the origins. And you then take that back with you. So the echoes get amplified and now we don't read Deuteronomy 5 and the Sabbath the same way. We, we view it as loaded up with all the connotations of Genesis 1. Does that make sense? And, and, and that wraps all around it. Um, and clearly there isn't really a limit to that wrapping because the, the more broadly I understand Genesis 1, the more broadly I'll understand this Sabbath. What then happens is I take that broader understanding with me into the laws of Deuteronomy and I see the spirit behind the laws of Deuteronomy. So I'm seeing what's really going on and I see the architecture of the echoes in the book. Does that, does that make sense to you as a schematic? So that's what I'll be doing tonight. Um, and as we go in, there are three keys to understanding. So this is a bit of literature but it's also bit of history. The first thing which is really important you've heard before is the word commandment is mistranslated. You all know that? It is completely mistranslated. It must be translated words. They are ten words. And John Walton's very strong about that. If you read John's books, he doesn't call them commandments. It's the first word, second word. So word is a more, it's a bigger word than a commandment. A commandment is do this, do that. Word is like a big idea or a big principle. So if we were to read these as 10 architectural principles, that would be a better translation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the, uh, the laws themselves. Now this is not specific to Deuteronomy. It's actually how the ancient world wrote laws. You know, the code of Hammurabi and so on. When we write a law in legislation, and for my sins I have worked with the Office of Parliamentary Council to rewrite law uh, in plain English and I, I rewrote, you know, we, we had, I was part of a project to simplify the Tax Act, a useless task that was, but um, so, so I know what I'm talking about, for my, you know, I've, I've sat in a room for five days trying to rewrite as an example of plain English with their top draft, <laughs> trying to rewrite uh, reporting principles for claims on cars, I think it was, from memory. But when we write a law, we cover everything. Right? That's actually what's gone wrong with our legal system, by the way. There's a big, you probably know, there's a debate between black letter law and grey law. But black letter law is, I'm going to cover every contingency. I'm going to specify it all, because that's why the Tax Act grows and grows and grows and grows and no one can keep it. it that doesn't work, by the way. If you want to know why legalism doesn't work, just look how, why legislation doesn't work. The ancient world did not uh, think that way at all. Their details were more examples of how this might work in practice. That was how they did it. So, therefore, when you're reading Deuteronomy, you're not meant to be reading some kind of 
complete coverage. It's more an example of a wise way of how this might work out. Straight away you get relieved of a lot of pressure because clearly it's an ancient Near Eastern context. It's not our context. It's, um, once you understand that, you get relieved of saying, well, how does it apply in you know, 2017? Dumb question, that is. So the, the, the next point is really um, uh, John Walton's point. Uh, and John, following his teacher, is uh, 80 to 90% convinced that the structure of Deuteronomy is provided by the Ten Words. I mean, when you read the book of Deuteronomy, it, it seems to be a sprawling, disorganised group of eclectic principles. And so people said, is there any structure in it? So there are a couple of answers to that. But, but I think the answer that I really like is the answer that John puts forward is, yes, it's got a Decalogue structure. In other words, ten words in order... And we can go through the book and we can put chapters underneath each of those sequentially. So it works like this. Um, the first word, no other God before me, is covered in chapters 6 to 11. The second word, don't have any images of me, is chapter 12. The third word, honour my name, is chapter 13. The fourth is the Sabbath, which is chapters 14, 15 and 16. Uh, honour your parents is 17 and 18 uh, don't murder is 19 to 21 adultery is 22 theft is 23 false witness is 24 and don't covet is 26 that's the decalogical structure and if you add to that structure the previous point that these were examples of the spirit behind that word does that make sense? We, that frees us up to see what might be... For instance, when we look at 14 to 16, which you will write, it doesn't mention keeping the Sabbath. 14 to 16, well, 16 kind of does, but, but 14 and 15 don't mention keeping the Sabbath. They're about tithing and debt release and freedom from slaves. But, it, but if you say the principle behind the Sabbath is what is informing them, then you get freed up to see it at work. Um... Now, John's written about this extensively if you want to, if you want to uh, follow it up, but that, that's good enough what we've got there. Does that make sense? It's kind of appealing because it, it's very, very, very appealing. There's an anomaly here in the ten words, though. This is, not, this, is not, this is not John, this is me. And I've always seen this as a complete anomaly um, until, uh, until preparing for this talk. So I say I'm, I'm, the, I'm the greatest student of this talk. And that is, the first three is uh, profound words of theology to do with our relationship with God. Get that. At a similar level of profundity, the last you know, five to ten are profound principles of morality. Don't covet, don't bear false witness. I mean, they're epic. And, but the anomaly for me is, where does the Sabbath fit? Because it seems to be about a ritual, a religious ritual. And it doesn't seem to be at the same level of profundity as the theological words or the social order words. So there's a, there's a real question here. And by the way, underneath this question is the heart of our sacred-secular split. What's a ritual, a religious ritual doing at the level of this profound socio-theological system? What's it doing there? I don't know if anyone else has ever had that. I might be the only one who was bothered by this question, but that was the question that's privately all my life. I thought, why does this fit? Yeah. Did any other system anywhere come up with a, a day to honour God? No. So what you, you will, tonight I'll make the point profoundly, and I'm borrowing on a famous essay by a guy called W. W. Hallow, H-A-L-L-O, written in 1977 from Yale. And he then profoundly, conclusively made the case that there are only two parts of the Mosaic law that are completely unique. I mean, all of it stretches, but completely unique. One is the Sabbath and the other is the attitude to kingship. We'll get onto it. But if you want to 
if, you, if the question interests you, if you Google his name, you'll, you'll be able to get a copy of that essay, which was delivered to the Jewish Society of New York or something in 1977. So, here we go. <laughs> Unique. It was the idea of a day of the week. The idea of the week was utterly an invention of the Jews. There's no... There's no, nothing can be found that suggests it might have been built on something else from anywhere in the ancient Near Eastern world. That's not the case with the debt release system. The debt release system was a work. I mean, you know, the Babylonians had a kind of a debt release system. That wasn't utterly unique. It was stretched in, in unique ways, but it wasn't utterly unique. So, what governed their world in Mesopotamia was the moon. And the moon... Uh, the cycle, the phases of the moon were punctuated time. We're now going to get profound because we're now talking about time and our view of time. This is a really important point. We're sort of in, into the new physics territory. What is time? And so what, if you had a, you know, pretty well universally in the, in, the, in the Mesopotamian world, it was the lunar cycle. I think the only other cycle that we know from ancient worlds might be the seasons. But the lunar cycle was a, was a kind of a cultic cycle uh, where everything in civic life and cultic life was tied to the phases of the moon and the lunar calendar. They didn't have weeks. Um, Israel, in a complete innovation, built everything around the number seven. Number seven is more important than the idea of the week. The number seven clearly gave them the boundary of the week as the unit of time. So all of time is going to get bounded by the number seven, the module. Um, that number seven is not just a week because we know that it became you know, seven weeks of weeks. Uh, they had festivals of weeks. They had years, the seventh year, so their whole, their jubilee system, so there were these cascades of sevens that covered all their, their agriculture, their worship, their economy, the seven thing, that's why I began with that image of the drop of water with the ripples, and that governed everything. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? So we're looking at two alternative concepts of time. Um, hello. This is what he said. The sabbatical cycle is, quote, the most fundamental piece of social legislation in the Decalogue. The most fundamental piece of social legislation in the Decalogue. And what we come to is that all time in the uh, vision of Moses is bounded by the Sabbath. The Sabbath has actually defined time itself and has created the basic module or unit of time on the earth. So, where does that take us? What are, what are, what's the implication of this unique Jewish invention? Um, if you think about the lunar cycle, I think what it is doing is it's almost like a, a, a reincarnational cycle of an endless iteration of cycles. Like, like we're bound on an endless wheel of iteration and repetition. Um, and secondly, that the heavens rule human endeavour because it's like, you know, the stars rule us and I think it's, it's the, the sense of cosmology ruling and subordinating our actions. The, the Sabbath, once you, uh, what the Sabbath does is it, the Sabbath evokes Genesis chapter 1. It evokes Genesis chapter 1. So when you read Sabbath uh, from the year 2017, you think, oh, that's a strange Jewish festival, and does it, is it Saturday or is it Sunday, and what day, didn't do any work, and was it from hours to hours? No, I don't think that. Just go straight through the Sabbath and start reading Genesis 1. Because that's what it's all about. It's grounding the imagination of the entire Jewish mind in Genesis 1 and 2. 
That's the reason that it's the seventh day, because God rested on the seventh day. So that's the big picture. That's the echo. That's why it's so important. And therefore, um, this creation story, not the, not the Sabbath ritual, but the creation story is setting the boundary for all time and all activity. For all time and activity to be understood, you've got to put it inside the creation story. That's what it's telling them. Um, now, all activity, because human activity happens through time. That's, 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 that's how we experience life, is through time. And uh, all activity requires a story with a beginning and an end. Why is that important? Because stories create meaning. If, if all time is, is just a rat-a-tat repetition of seconds or hours, then it's, it's, it's just like, it's absolutely meaningless. But a story or a narrative gives it a beginning and an end. And what the Sabbath is saying is the creation story gives every human being on the planet a beginning and an end and meaning. So, to, go, to be precise, there is now a declaration I am prepared to make to anyone in the world and a debate to be had and I'm happy to have it and I'm keen to have it and it's a debate way before we get on to sin and salvation. It is the world view that I have hitched my wagon to, which began with Moses, says all of human activity and time is framed by expectation and memory, or most particularly purpose and promise, that we are living inside a purpose and we are living inside a promise, which is heck of a good news. So, um, with that picture, uh, what, how do we take it down a, a, you know, another level? Well, as I said, we go back to the echoes of the Sabbath in Genesis 1 and 2. And what, what parts of the Sabbath, I mean, what, what parts of creation do we latch on to? When I was younger, the younger Christian, I never went to Genesis 1 except to argue over evolution. Right, that was the only reason I went there. And you have all these fruitless debates about was it seven literal days or what you, you know, all this. And, and um, then, you know, that doesn't take us anywhere meaningfully. The story is... Yeah, you know, I mean the, the Genesis chapter one is a poem. It's a highly structured poem with a, an incredibly strong, unique declaration about some things about the creation. And this is the big one. What's on? This is the biggest one of all, which is that it is a gift from the supreme being, from God. It is a gift for us. And if you can remember what John Walton talked about. This was completely contrary to the ancient Near East world. It belonged to the gods and we were their slaves. The gods owned it, not us, and we were, we were, we were their slaves. That's what the entire ancient world believed. And Genesis 1 says, no, sorry, the supreme God made it for you. So whenever you see a flower, say thank you, God. Whenever you feel the wind on your face, say thank you, God, for oxygen. I, it just, I know one day it hit me, I can remember where I was sitting on the veranda of our place at Evoke and we owned it, and I just suddenly saw that this, I think perhaps there was a lot of talk about the ozone layer at the time, I can't remember, but I suddenly saw that this earth was wrapped in the atmosphere, and I, it just, I just suddenly saw it was a blanket of love. And inside this atmosphere there's teeming life, and I just had this overwhelming sense of this enormous gift to us, how rare it is. We know it's totally rare in the universe. So it's a gift, and the gift is good. And I think um, really to explore this further, Miroslav's talks when he came out here, his first talk on the Friday night about creation being a gift was fabulous. And we're expected to see it as a gift. Um, the seventh day also foreshadows a new creation, which is the promise of rest. So it's about promise. It isn't just about a gift and that's all over, but a promise. And... Um, Importantly, the seventh day, this is mind-boggling, we can't get into it in detail, but it's shared rule. We are invited into God's rest. And God authenticates, like, the, 
the creation is it's personal. It's personal. You know, the person behind it, we're on the receiving end, and God wants us to keep on personalising the world. So we are invited to see creation not as objective matter and um, you know laws and physics as if they're some kind of scientific puzzle where we're meant to see it as, as a personal gift of God. So that's, that's all inside Genesis 1. Um, and if we take that back with us into the Sabbath, that, that, that picture can frame um, all of our efforts upon the earth, all of life upon the earth. That, and by the way, my experience of this is, is a discipline because you really, you know, I think we all lose sight of that. You know, we all slip and there are times in life when this needs particularly strong discipline to believe, like when things are going wrong. I, I can remember sitting at a, it was a Christian conference it was all about Christian action in the public world and I thought it was very right-wing, family first, I didn't like it much. And they were talking about you know, various ways that Christians should interact in the world. It was all going to go down a censorship political pathway. But at the time, it was the global financial crisis and um, at the time, my business was under a lot of stress. And since I'm an entrepreneur and own the business, and it's a business with big up and down cycles, what that mean, meant for me and Anne was you, you start to think about bankruptcy, losing everything. Because, you know, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in entrepreneurs. I believe entrepreneurs can be fabulously wealthy. I, I, I completely disagree with the large salaries paid to CEOs because they can't lose anything. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't think anyone should be paid $10 million. But I don't mind if an entrepreneur earns $10 million because they could have to write a cheque for $10 million next year and they could be bankrupt and lose everything. Fair enough, that's the game. You know? But let me tell you, it's scary if you're facing that prospect, like all the time. It's not going to go away in 30 minutes. It's probably going to be a reality for a year or two. So how do you live with that? And the Sabbath principle was how I lived with it. At the end of it all, it's God's. I'm going to die anyway. Whether I die wealthy or poor, it doesn't matter. And I've got this huge gift that encompasses everything. And it doesn't take away all the pain, but it certainly sets boundaries around it. And while these people were talking about how does it, I was thinking how much more kind of visceral to me this application was of the Sabbath principle. Does that make sense? By the way, um, it then becomes equally important when you're blessed. It's almost like it's most important at the extremes and Deuteronomy talks about that. Um, so I think that, per, you know, I think as I've suggested here, I, in my mind I think we should cross the word Sabbath out and call it creation day. You know, you've got women's day and disability. Let's, let's call it creation day, you know, that, because that's what it's about. It's, a, it's the creation day to, to invite us to think about that. So it's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. Now, um, Again, Hallow's statement down the bottom uh, is uh, worthwhile reading out. He said, the Sabbath is a memorial to the week of creation and a sign forever that the Lord made heaven and earth in six days and rested and refreshed on the seventh day. Now, that's actually a tremendous principle to declare to the world because it's a principle of hope. For work today, um, I think this might be a little bit repetitive but worthwhile saying, I think, I think there's a kind of a space we can take in our dispositions into public life. Public life meaning projects I'm on, tasks I'm doing, and if I take a disposition with me, I'm prepared to talk about a disposition. But, you know, because I think that in our evangelism we've got to get used to... to you know, backing off the actual redemption story and coming back to some foundational principles, like what do we believe about the cosmos? And so for me, I'm prepared to declare life is full of meaning and I expect to find it everywhere. And that meaning is, a, is, a, is 
All can participate in it. So don't give me your crap that of nihilism. So I've set my face against nihilism, which is the spirit of the age. And I'll be prepared to take it on anywhere. That's our enemy. It's one of the kind of spirits of our age. So we're on, we're on hope, not nihilism. And we can declare that promise. I think we should be very positive people who should be inviting everybody to find the meaning in their life. Uh, secondly, wisdom. Um, I, I think that the more we marinate our mind in the creation story, the more we get wisdom about how we might act in various circumstances. Uh, it's like an analogy. It teaches me because God's smart. And when I was a young Christian, I, one of the problems I had was that God didn't appear to be that smart. He was just holy. All right? so that's all we said. He's just holy. You know, he tells you what not to do, which, well, this is boring. Like, you know, I mean, I, I'm in a messy, complex situation. I'd like somebody to say something smart to me. And, um, well, God is, is super smart, but you've got to study his actions. And I would say that you know, my whole world is innovation. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, the firm I run is among the most classy innovation firms in the world. And I would say I would get, I can't put a percentage on it, but tons of my deep inspiration on the nature of creativity from marinating my mind in Genesis 1. Simple example, right? Structure comes before productivity. Now, the first three days are all about structure and setting boundaries. The second three days are all about productivity. So a lot of people want to be creative and productive, but they have no structure in their lives. They say, well, sorry, look, get structure first. Some structure will help you. As a matter of fact, creativity works with structure. I won't go to further. But you see what I mean? My, so my mind is kind of, God is smart, and, and, and we can see in his actions a lot of wisdom. Um, and, but then the personal thing, this is all about love, because we are meeting God and participating with him um, as we act as sub-creators. So all uh, reform and act, all activity in the world should be an activity of love. Love for others, love for what we do. You know, one of the best things I... Uh, like the word love is going it, it, to... It's getting a resurgence. I've already told you about human flourishing. But, I mean, the... the I'm going to be running a workshop next week for a very large organisation and in the vision, you know, I want them to think about the iconic tasks they do that set them apart. And there's a question. Questions are very important. So you can ask the question, what do you do? What are you good at? That doesn't quite get you there. The question I'm going to ask them is, what do you love doing? What do you love? You know, Men often make conversation by saying, "What do you do?" Uh, and the answer comes back, oh, I'm, a, I'm, a, "I'm an ex executive general manager of systems integration, or some meaningless stuff like that." You know, I'll put a title on myself. But think how different the conversation is. What do you love? Well, what do you love about what you do? So I think we that so so we see these principles there. Um, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but I actually think Ecclesiastes is anti-Genesis. Um, this is a big book you know and God's a big God and he's smart enough to have alternative voices because everything that everything that Ecclesiastes says is true it just hasn't got the Sabbath in it and this is the famous one they write songs about they don't write songs about the Sabbath this is almost like a lunar cycle song time for everything and time, time, time and it gets poor old Ecclesiastes is spending a lot of time trying to veer away from darkness and most Christians are sort of, you know, struggling with where to put it. And, and I think it is in a wonderful, wondrous book, i.e. the Old Testament, it's almost a counterpoint, the counterpoint to Genesis. You want to go further, it's probably written by Solomon, who's probably the beginning of the end. And he's the beginning of the end, why? Think about your question earlier on, in what I'm about to say. He fulfilled the royal principle.
created hierarchy and wealth. And certainly if you hear Ian Proven talk about it, he's the beginning of the end. And all of his wisdom, uh, it was very wise. It was incredibly wise. I mean, no one can't say that this isn't wise and true. It just hasn't. It's almost like the, the, light, is, the light is almost out. Not quite out, but it's almost out. So that's, that's an, an idea to, to play with. Um, I won't go further, I won't read it all out because you know, time, is, time is moving on. No time for it, yeah. The alternative is Job 38. Job 38 is a phenomenal chapter, 38 and 39. When he gets into Leviathan, I can't quite work that one out, but you can't do everything in a short time. But The book of Job is a phenomenal drama, as you know. Job's going through, I mean, it's one of the greatest works of literature in, in, you know, in any category, not just religious category. So, but, but it's important to understand it's a drama, i.e. there are people saying things that the author doesn't believe is true. So, you know, Job's false comforters. I mean, my favourite example, this is Abbotsley's motto, which is from one of Job's false comforters. I <laughs> 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 don't think they've quite realised that. Um, the time flies like a weaver's shuttle. Well, that's one of his false comforters. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, they're, and they're all doing their best from their angles and Job's in the middle of it all and in 37, the prior chapter, you do get one of the, I think it's Elihu, actually talk to him, almost like, you know, like uh, look, you've got to think about creation. So he gets it right, but then God interrupts with this phenomenal passage and it... it, it uh, it's, uh, I didn't have the time to do a detailed literary analysis, but it's like Elihu's words are formulaic. Like, you know, but when God speaks, it's like there is an electric charge through the words, and it's personal. It's personal, and God is speaking. And I'll just read it out because it's fabulous. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Finally, God speaks, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans? with words without knowledge, which is how we talk about the creation. 